from Social Service Stardashi, I am Jingyao. This is COVID-19 Community Chronicles in Singapore, a podcast documenting community initiatives and discussing related structural or systemic challenges. On June 15th, A Good Space, or AGS, Singapore's first community-owned cooperative, organized a discussion involving speakers from four non-profit organizations. AWARE, or the Association of Women for Action and Research, Beyond Social Services, Readable, and SG Assist. The discussion, which I had the privilege of moderating, was titled Beyond COVID-19, The Future of Social Services for Low-Income Youth and Families. In this episode, we summarized three segments featuring the work of the organizations, how research and advocacy feature in their work, as well as the future of social policies and social services in Singapore. The full two-hour discussion can be accessed on the AGS Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash agoodspacesg That's www.facebook.com slash agoodspacesg This first segment focuses on the work of the organizations. To kick things off, I'm going to invite the four speakers to first give us an idea of your organization's work. What was the focus before COVID-19? How has COVID-19 changed that work? And what are some of the more important needs of low-income youth and families? Now, I'm going to put you on the spot, but can I start with you, Ranga? I'll, I'll invite you to go from Beyond Social Services. Thank you, Jin Yao. Uh, hi, everyone. Nice to have you all here, and uh, thanks for inviting me to share on this panel. So Beyond Social Services is a charity with a mission to help children and youth from less privileged backgrounds. So in Singapore, we look at uh, one and two room rental housing uh, to break away from the poverty cycle. Uh, We rejigged our work uh, about seven or eight years ago to take a longer term view of these children and young people growing up in these neighborhoods. And uh, we keep in touch with them through their families and community till they reach the age of 25, 25 being when they can be independent. And uh, by which time we hope that their lives have uh, been well supported. So they are free of the social and economic problems uh, they, they were in when we first met them. Uh, of course, we don't do this alone. We build a relationship with the partners on the ground uh, and more specifically the local residents and the local members as we call them and other agencies in the neighborhood. Uh, so first we start off with the strengths uh, inventory, we do door knocking, we meet the families face to face. And over time, there are very strong relationships that are formed and people step forward naturally and become uh, natural leaders in their own community. So the community workers rely on a lot of the information that the community members provide uh, so that we can engage the rest in the neighborhood. So our work in the beginning before COVID-19, what it looked like was uh, regular community engagement and uh, community activity, uh, community asset mapping, conversations, engaging the youth in various ways so that they can also become leaders in their own community and they grow a sense of belonging. A lot of walking the ground and meeting people and uh, identifying the issues that trouble the families and the communities so that local uh, groups can come together to address their own issues. Uh, And as COVID-19 came along, uh, the problems are the same, except made worse because we can't visit the communities and there's a lot of uh, uh, people who lost their jobs. 
So what we ended up doing was to uh, very quickly we reorganized ourselves. We, we started doing a survey among the families that we know and uh, mainly from the parents of the children who attend our programs and the youth who have taken on leadership roles. And we began asking them, uh, how has COVID-19 impacted you? And uh, the key things that we heard was uh, definitely employment was affected. Uh, there was a need for financial support. There was a need for food and uh, IT and connectivity. These became the key areas that uh, were highlighted to us through the survey. And when that happened, we found ourselves uh, very quickly into four uh, essential areas, as we call it. So the whole organization chart had to be re redone. And we are all working in these four uh, areas. And uh, we found that almost everyone we called had loss of income. So some even reported zero income uh, as they had been asked to uh, take no pay leave or had been asked to leave their jobs. Some reported reduced income due to reduced work hours. And it, the situation seemed to be worsening as we continued with the survey. Uh, and that's where we are. So we are still working in those four teams, addressing the needs that have uh, come about as a result of COVID. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Ranga. And next, maybe I can move on to Michelle from Readabar. Tell us a bit more about the organization, how, it's, how the COVID experience has been. I feel like I'm coming after Ranga, we do very little. But uh, so Ranga talked about wanting to lift you know, families out of poverty in the long term. And that's also our aim, but we focus on a very specific thing. Okay, now we tell ourselves, but like Japanese artisans, we focus on doing one thing and doing it damn well, and that's education. And that's been our goal from the very beginning. Uh, COVID hasn't changed that. We focus on literacy, critical thinking, and more recently, also numeracy. So how we've been doing it? Okay, so we started out in in little one in some of the one room flats, and we started growing in there by word of mouth before we moved to a more centralized location. And we, now we teach kids from ages three three to fifteen. I teach the three and fifteen year olds, and so that's what I mean by children of all ages. We we. Before COVID, we used to go in ev into the estate every single week. So all these volunteers would descend upon the estate and go into, into the different rooms and run classes for all the different kids. And it's, I, I won't go into the details of how we ran our classes, but what happened with COVID was we, we couldn't have those classes and that was very stressful. I think Ranga said in a meeting the other day that the more stressful thing is not being able to do our work. And it was, um, I remember we having phone calls at the beginning where uh, our core members were like, what's going to happen to our kids? They're going to fall even further behind. So lots of our kids, um, when, when they start primary school, at least without intervention uh, earlier on, uh, many of them are not able to read and write by the time they start primary one. And and our job, our, our aim has always been to close that gap. And when the kids come to us early on, we, we do manage to succeed most of the time. But... Um, when we can't even see them, it's very stressful to think that all our kindergartners might be going into primary school, uh, not being able to read and write or count. And, and once that starts, it's really painful for them. The, the kind of the, the shame and the negative attitudes towards learning that they start to, to take on, uh, it, it's, it's, it's hard to overcome. So we, we, went, a bit, we went a bit crazy um, the first two weeks of home-based learning. Okay, I, I personally was on stay-at-home notice, so I was spared from this, but my, my teammates went quite crazy delivering laptops 
and Wi-Fi to all every single child we work with. And these are, I mean, we are not IT uh, brokerers by any measure, right? But uh, these were donated to us by people, uh, which we're very grateful for. And so, so we spent the first couple of weeks just moving everything online. And by the second week, we were able to, we were able to start classes running with, with our kids. And I think one good thing, one silver lining of this COVID thing is that we managed to use the natural upheaval of, of the pandemic to make some organizational, some practical changes that we've been wanting to do for a long time. But it's, it's just hard to do with, you know, with the, the day to day rush of normal life. And also we're a fully volunteer run organization. We have no paid staff at all. So, so this in a way gave us a bit of a break to do those like bigger um, strategic uh, changes. Um, that's one, one good thing. Um, but but what, else did, what else did we see? Is, is that one of the questions, Jenny? Are we also now supposed to talk about? Yeah, what, what do you see? What, what have you seen, seen yeah. during the pandemic? Yeah. So, I mean, Ranga put it very well uh, that the pandemic just kind of put a magnifying glass on the problems that were already there. So, okay, from the, from the point of view of a child, right, we have to think about what, what does a child need? And a child needs, at the very least, I, I think, um, a good, calm and stable family environment with good role models and in which their physical, social, educational and emotional needs are met at every stage of development. And this is the same for any child, right? Um, advantage or not. Um, and in the best of times, the kids we work with, um, these needs are not met. Uh, at least not to a level most people would consider optimal, I, I dare say. COVID-19 is bad for all kids' development. Like kids cannot go out, they cannot interact with the ordinary world, they cannot socialize. This, this is not good for any child, but it really shone a light on existing disadvantage for the children that, that we work with. Ranga talked about jobs. Jobs are a really big issue. So we cannot divorce the needs of children from the needs of the rest of the family. They are so closely intertwined. Our parents, oh, our parents, our kids' parents' jobs, uh, many of them are already precarious and low paying. Many of them are already in arrears. And like Ranga said, I mean, I, all the families I have spoken to have lost income in this time. And because they are already in arrears in ordinary times, there's no savings buffer for them. And then the parents get stressed. The breadwinners, uh, and these are often the fathers, la, they feel a responsibility to pay the bills, to go and hustle for the kids and their families, and they come under a lot of stress. I also observe that this makes their self-esteem take a hit. You know, they try and get jobs, they try and get income, but they can't, and it's not, it may not be their fault, right? And then that translates to all kinds of friction within the home which I think AWARE is more qualified to comment on than I am. Uh, but kids cannot run away from family conflict, especially in spaces like the ones that they live in. Which brings me to the next point on, on the spaces that they live in. The homes that our, our kids live in um, are very small and everyone's crowded in tiny spaces. Everyone's kind of in each other's spaces all the time during COVID-19 when no one's allowed to go out. So parents and children are all fatigued um, when we have when we have Zoom calls with the kids, 
they some of them keep dropping out because of maybe poor internet connection or the siblings are fighting, you know, there's, there's a baby, like a baby in the family hitting the face of the child who's on the screen the whole time. Now, obviously, they cannot stay all in the class or the parents don't know how to use Zoom properly. There's an um, IT um, illiteracy issue there or the kids just don't take well to screens. So that so then that moves us into the, the, the digital divide issue, right? Um, a lot of our kids, like I said, had no laptops and Wi-Fi for home-based learning, the slow connection. Um, the, when, the parents, when the parents don't know how to deal with IT issues, it's very stressful for them too. And many of them try to help the kids with home-based learning, but they find that they're out of their depth. And this, is, this actually hurts the family dynamic in a very subtle way. When the kids realize that their educational ability at primary four, primary three, um, it already surpasses that of their parents, that it, it really leads to a lot of family conflict and a lot of stress for the parents. So, I mean, this, these are some of the ways that, that we've seen um, come up. Uh, we've, we've seen the kids affected by, by COVID-19. And I, yeah, we can talk more about any of those things. Yeah, and I think some of the questions in the Q&A at the end of this segment would I think there are a lot directed to you so I'm gonna um, frame them and, and direct it to you and Ranga I think I think at this point I'm gonna invite Karina to um, share next to talk about the organization's work what's happened before COVID and during COVID Karina please thanks Jenya thanks for having me um, so I'm part of AWARE and AWARE is a gender equality organization we focus on services, providing services to mainly to women, um, training and uh, research and advocacy. We are one of the few groups in Singapore who has a pretty uh, strong emphasis on research and advocacy. And um, I will be talking quite a bit about this later. In terms of services uh, and what we did before, the services are the Women's Care Center that runs the Women's Helpline it provides legal counseling, as well as counseling for women who need this. And we also run a small shelter for 10 families, and we run the sexual assault care center. So our work is not so much uh, focused on lower income persons in terms of our services, because the helpline really serves, I would say, mm, people of all different incomes, but mm, people from lower income families don't tend to call the helpline as much as from other income groups. Because people from lower income groups tend to worry more about bread and butter issues rather than their emotional issues. I mean, bread and butter issues rather than um, their emotional issues, right? So, um, but we do do quite a bit of research on lower income groups. Now, what has happened uh, in the women's helpline? So all of you probably have read about the sharp increases in family conflict, violence and abuse in families during this period. It is not just happening in Singapore, it's happening in the world. And we, when COVID happened, we had to do a couple of things very quickly, right? Thank, thankfully, we had already moved uh, to internet telephony. So 
we had the infrastructure to actually start running the helpline, not from the office, but from the homes of volunteers. We had an IT system that was on the cloud. So, uh, you know, in a couple of days, we were actually able to mobilize our volunteers to take all the calls from home. So that was number one, making sure that we could continue with the service. Then we saw that there was a sharp increase in calls. If we didn't expand our volunteers and the staff taking the calls, there would be a lot of missed calls. So we added a third line. And so, so in a, you know, in a time where we couldn't work in the office, we actually expanded the service. You will see that we have a couple of ads out because we are increasing the number of staff that we have during this time just to deal with these calls. Of course, with the calls, um, we are also then, uh, it means more counseling, more legal clinics, right? There's, there's a knock-on effect for all the other services. We also knew that there were some women who could not reach out to us safely by calling the helpline. So we set up a new chat service and we said, you tell us what time you can chat with us and we will be there. And that's how they managed to, uh, in some cases, get help like when the, uh, the abuser stepped out of the house, etc. Right. So, so we had to do quite a lot of things uh, quite quickly. And that was the services side. And the research and advocacy side also um, saw this as an opportunity. So we were not so much responding to a need for services on the research and advocacy side, but we saw this as an opportunity to see, to magnify, right? To, to, to see where are the cracks in our social uh, welfare systems. Uh, we knew we were particularly concerned about a few groups of people. And so while we had our year long research programs, we also said we are launching four more new research pieces specifically to find out how COVID has had an impact on migrant spouses, domestic workers, self-employed persons, and people who were caregivers for the elderly. Right? We were, these were our research interests already. And now we were, we were doing short-term research to find out what was happening, how were these people affected by, um, by COVID. So for example, with this research, we saw that 90% of our 36 respondents who were from the migrant spouses uh, group saw a drastic decrease in income or they thought they lost their jobs in, in many cases. However, unlike other low-income families, because they are not Singaporeans, they didn't have a lot of the government support that other families got. Uh, domestic workers, of course, saw an increase in uh, the uh, amount of work and had fewer rest days. Over 50% of our 42 respondent caregivers saw a marked increase in caregiving responsibilities. So I guess what COVID has done is one, increase our services. We saw in, in the families, we, we, I think COVID magnified existing problems, right? If fundamentally the family was not so strong with COVID, everyone living in the same house, 
it actually magnified some of the problems. With research and advocacy, we, um, we were opportunistic and we said, let's just see what is happening to these groups. And when there is a crisis, when they fall, will they have the chance to recover or will they have less chances to recover than other people? So those are some of the um, subjects of our inquiry. Thank you. Thank you, Karina. And I think we'll pick on some of these later as well with the research and advocacy part of it. I guess for the end of this segment, end of this question, I'm going to invite um, Adrian from SG Assist to tell us about his organization's work and um, the observations during COVID. Thank you, Xinyao. So, uh, hi everyone. So, what uh, what we do in SG Assist is that we have created a mobile app, sort of like a digital kampong, if you were to put it into context of what we are having right now is that uh so what we're going to do is that i mean so what we do is that actually we allow you to cloud source for real uh real time help for your loved ones uh and where they are so uh even though you may be away from home but there will always be a chance for you to a, a additional option for you to find uh, extra help within the neighborhood to check in your loved ones and um i would just say that our idea has uh, has only surfaced because of covid-19 it has really been um uh, something that we have been working on for the past two years and the reason why we started out is because we are all caregivers with uh, someone that we love that has actually faced some form of chronic diseases uh, including mental health and uh, we actually um, can empathize a lot with a lot of other caregivers out there whereby we actually we are always focusing on how we can actually fulfill our responsibility at our work at the same time we have to be responsible for our loved ones at home and honestly, I don't think it's going to be any way easy for any of us here, even uh, the rest of you here, can actually juggle in between um, being a caregiver and your own career. So um, this is the very reason why we actually started SGSCs to help you to find help from your neighborhood. And um, the reason, um, further to that, um, we actually emphasize a lot about community building. We have been we we realize how important it is for community to be able to take a step forward to help one another, um, for very simple reasons that the best help isn't really just uh, the family member, but it's there is the those who are actually near to the ones that we care for and they can actually render help to to them. So this is the import, most important factor why we design SGSCs the way it is, and further to that, uh, we wanted to also cultivate a. I would say an ecosystem of uh, gratitude giving and also giving appreciations to the volunteer. So in our app, we actually design a portion of the, the, the design in a way that is sort of like time banking, but the time banking of Singapore style, whereby we wanted uh, people, to, uh, people who have actually helped you uh, to be able to grow and um, improve and self-improve themselves because of the gratitude that you have given them in the, in the form of credits. So for the volunteers who receive the credits that you have given them, they can actually uh, pay forward the credits to a charity of their choice. They can attend a free courses like caregiving course, first aid courses and so on, or redeem for products and services that is good for them, such as walking sticks or medical checkup for their loved ones. So this uh, system of paying it forward will help to sustain a, a stronger community that cares for one another and helping each other to grow and therefore a safer and a better society for our seniors to live in. 
And in, in continuation of that, we have also, SGSIS has also worked with AGS, uh, a good space, to come up with a campaign called the um, Community Care Force. And what we do is that uh, we're going to go to different estates and we're going to find volunteers to join us in these collaborations to actually work with our beneficiaries. Uh, I don't want to put name there as beneficiary, but I couldn't find a better term in this context that everyone could understand. But uh, I would say the, the more vulnerable communities in the, in the neighborhood to actually join us to co-create activities together. So we don't want them to feel that they are just here to receive help but we want them to work with our volunteers to help them co-create events and activities that is good for them and therefore to spread the, that, you know, the, the strength of the community can be built because one, we trust one another and we understand each other and therefore we create activities on the longer term that we can engage each other and look after each other. So, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much on what I think we are doing here. Basically, it's about community building uh, building trust and forming a very uh, close ecosystem whereby we can help one another to grow together. Yeah. This second segment focuses on the role of research and advocacy. For the four speakers, we've been talking about what's happening on the ground and how your organizations have ensured that work continues. I'm interested in hearing how you understand and uh, how you hear and understand the needs of your communities, as well as the role of research and advocacy in your organizations. I mean, if I were to put this this way, how do you know what you know in that sense? I would summarize that question that way. So any of the four speakers, feel free to pick up from there. Um, I could start. I, I think the, I mean, for us, the basic belief that uh, is that people are experts of their own lives. So first and foremost, when we talk about advocacy or research, it is about listening. The listening is so, so important. So listening to what the community members need and want is, uh, is very important. And uh, that's what we have been doing. Uh, the other thing is ensuring that um, we conduct research in a way that enables the work. So it is not just academic research, right? So we, we participate in research whenever there's a need. We partner with the institutes of higher learning so that they can do the research for us. But And we lend ourselves to that kind of research. And we have recently actually started a couple of projects which is based on um, uh, community-based participatory research. So going on the belief that uh, community knows best, uh, how can we involve community voices in our research? And uh, the other thing that we do is a qualitative data. Uh, there is an ongoing newsletter that, that my boss Gerard writes every week. And that too, I would actually term it as storytelling and research, right? If we don't go and ask the community members, how did you find the work this week? What happened to you this week that you'd like to highlight? Uh, we will never know. So highlighting these to the larger audience, I would also say is qualitative stories gathering that we do on an ongoing basis. And we have got 12 years, of such data, 15 years, sorry, started in 20, uh, 2005. Um, when we gather all this data, what is the point in keeping this data without sharing? So advocacy comes in in different ways. I mean, beyond, uh, we have, we've done so many different programs and we often call ourselves like, uh, we do quiet advocacy. We are contributing to papers, we are contributing to research, 
in the background, but we are not out there putting out our research to say that this is the policy changes that we want. What we have done is contributed to policy papers through different interviews we've lent ourselves to, and most importantly, interviews with the community members. So always having the community voice upfront so that they can share what is exactly happening in their lives has been our focus on research. And uh, we have a very lean and mean research team. There's two of them <laughs> who, who enjoy research and you know their eyes lights up every time you talk about numbers, but they have been doing a great job in uh, getting us on track uh, when we do our programs. I find that when you receive a lot of uh, government funding, for instance, right, which we don't, not, not much, we, we receive about 40% of our fund comes from government, we have to do program evaluation. That does take up a lot of our time. Program evaluation is good in the sense that we do know the outcome quarterly, six monthly to report, uh, but at the same time, it becomes a routine in which we are asking very similar questions. And it's actually to prove that the program is doing well. If not, the funding may not come in. You can't really say I failed, right? So often the program evaluation takes up time, but it may not highlight the gaps that we are seeing. Uh, so as we see it on the ground, when we are doing this program evaluation and research, we have to be able to speak about this in various platforms and networks. So that if others are seeing the same thing as you're seeing, then let's come together. Let's raise this at the right platforms to be able to get some attention onto what we are seeing. So I think that's why that's how we have worked with research. I would still say that we have not we are not doing formal research as such. We our CBPR research has been put on hold because of COVID. We're very excited to get back in there uh, to get our community researchers who are already trained to participate in the research. And uh, research must inform the work. If it doesn't, then we are doing the same old, same old and uh, we are keeping ourselves busy. So, but it may not actually be meeting the needs on the, in the community. Got you. Maybe, Karina, maybe if Michelle. I can share. Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, whenever Ranga talks, I feel like I just want to pair of pom-poms and I want to be standing behind her and I'm waving them saying, yeah, yeah, what she said. <laughs> um, so her point on, Ranga's point on listening, um, listening to the families and assuming that, assuming that, you know, people are the experts of their own lives. That's kind of the, I, 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 I appreciate that, COVID uh, kind of forced us to do this a little bit more. So for some background, because like I said, we're fully volunteer run, we have always been, or for a very long time, we've been using this, this one curriculum, this like reading, this read, uh, literacy curriculum, which is great. It's like, it's practically cradle to grave. It's like plug and play. La. Volunteers can just come in new, pick it up and go. The, the trade-off with that curriculum is that it can be quite dry for the kids. But we've always been like, you know, we're all so busy. We're full-time volunteers. This is the best we can do. And they really graduate for this program. Like, they, they can read very well. Uh, like, they, they read very fluently. So, you know, it, it fits us. It serves our purpose. So what COVID did was that it, it forced us, like, it tore us away from this curriculum because it is in the, on the physical premises of uh, in Jalan Kuko. And we didn't have a way to move it all online um, when, when, when home-based learning started. So, so what that forced us to do was to, to talk to our kids about what they wanted and to gather feedback from them on what they enjoyed, what they wanted to learn. And so our, our tutors now, they, they do a lot more like human interest things with the kids. They plan um, and tailored lessons for the kids a lot more than they used to. Um, and especially for our youngest kids who may not be so able to tell us what they want to do, what they don't want to do. We've been, we've been trying things out with them. We've put in a lot more structure and we observe, we observe them very carefully uh, what their reactions are to every single activity, every single kid. 
and and then we plan the lessons for uh moving forward according according to what we observe that they enjoy which is um for those of you who are who are familiar it's kind of based on a quite a popular um pedagogy called Reggio Emilio uh so yeah Reggio Reggio I see younger nodding so um that that has actually helped um, our kids, some of our kids, become like very engaged in their classes. Where earlier, like before, it used to be quite a chore to coax them to pay attention. That's it. It's not perfect because some kids just don't like screen time, or and 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 bear in mind that the kids are still sitting in the home environment with all the stuff going on around them all the time, and we have to work very hard, like us on the little screens in front of them. We have to work very hard to get their attention and to keep it. So no, it's it's. It's it's really it's really not perfect, but um, I think that's been a, a positive move for us. On advocacy and research, again, we're fully volunteer run, so on and so forth. We do not have an advocacy and research arm because we we just don't have the bandwidth for it. So what we've been kind of doing, so we, we've been latching on. So we've been we've been um, riding in the coattails of of other organizations that that you know put panels together. Or, or they are doing some kind of research and they and they ping us for for details or some uh, we also enable we encourage our volunteers to go and help people who other people who are doing this kind of work to use our insights our organizational insights to inform their advocacy and their work so we don't have an arm but we're supportive and I completely agree with what Ranga said that your work should always be informed by by research so for us, it's very specialized. Our educational work is informed is informed by speaking to educators, um, by educators themselves. Um, how we interact with the families, it uh, we take our cue from more experienced practitioners, uh, like from people from beyond and aware. They publish the findings. It's super useful, you know, for us. Uh, we get. Uh, we also try and get. Um, um, expert facilitators in to train our volunteers to train us on on listening on how to listen like actively how to listen properly we were planning an, a trauma-informed um, kind of training session for our volunteers which is now a bit derailed because of COVID but basically we listen to the experts lah. that's what I'm trying to say yeah and because you mentioned um, aware Michelle I'm going to go to Karina to talk about um, this question Yes, so uh, I mentioned that we do research that's related to our services where in the course of doing um, your helpline, you type in the notes about what the call has been about. And from there, you can actually say, you know, this month we received this number of calls that were related to family violence, etc. So with that kind of um, data, which is um, we process it both qualitatively and quantitatively, we can be pretty fast off the mark to know month on month, you know, are we seeing an increase? What is the trend like? So we could say um, for April, we saw 119% increase, right? Very, very, very significant, right? And we will try to publish this as much as possible and, and, and spread it on our social media and send it um, to the media uh, with press release, et cetera, because we want Singapore to know, we want the policymakers to know, we want you know, people to step up services if necessary. We're not a large organization, but we feel that our, our value add will be not just the services, but really the data that we have. Uh, we have a team of, Ranga has two, we have about six or more, right? Uh, 
people who are in the advocacy research and communications department, right? Um, so there's a lot of research that is not related to any of our services. We do research to try to improve the system in the long run, right? Uh, but before we, we will first need to identify which areas we want to go to. So uh, even just arriving at what is the area I conceptualize the research sometimes can take four months, six months, because we want to be, since you can only do, you know, a few pieces of research a year, you want to be really, really targeted and spot on with what you're researching. Um, so yes, uh, the stories then get analyzed, we publish, we share this with as many people as possible. Because we cannot, we don't have such a large team, we can't actually uh, speak to hundreds of people. We'll speak to you know, 30 to 50 people for most of our research pieces. And then we validate this by speaking to other organizations that work in this area, right? So if we're doing a piece of research on domestic workers, we, will, we probably will collaborate with HOME for that, but we will also uh, ask other people working in this area, this is what we found, uh, is this your experience? So that even though it's a small group, um, we actually have the collective experience of many people working in this area, then it becomes quite powerful. Thank you. Thank you. And for Adrian, how do you hear or understand the needs of your community? Um, we pretty much goes to the ground to do uh, what we do as a community. So, um, other than uh, observing what are the what are the requests that people put up online, or what are the questions and the requests for help that people send to us via email or via WhatsApp and so on. Uh, that's where we actually see some of the gaps and uh, the challenges that people face that they couldn't get help from. And also for some of the cases, um, we, I mean, at least within ourselves, uh, among my teammates, we will actually go down to the ground and really um, try to serve some of the requests um, and try to understand what went wrong and why do they need help. It's like, uh, I mean, if, if uh, any of you actually downloads our app and start, in, start to put out requests for your client, uh, start to put in some requests for your own loved ones, you, you may see me going towards you because uh, we do occasionally go down to the ground like maybe a few times per week to uh, attend to different kinds of cases to see what are the challenges that people face in their life and so that we can actually use the learning to improve our app. So uh, I would say we didn't really have like uh, such in, uh, a great comprehensive research way of doing things, but we really go to the ground to understand the ground needs. Um, but at the same time, we are also working with um, SUSS on the research, uh, whereby they're trying to study how um, or, or what SGSS is doing in terms of community building could uh, result in a better health outcome of the uh, community health and or at least a better mental health among all the caregivers so that's the only research thing that we have at this moment. In this final segment, the organisations speak to what they would like to see and what they would not like to see with social policies and social services in the future. 
So anyone can go ahead. I know those are really broad, big questions, but yeah. Okay, I'm going to start. All right. So I think one thing is that uh, I hope we see that um, social policy is not just about, you know, making sure that people when they're down, that they, um, they have some support. But we've, we should think about it more as the policies um, that we need in Singapore in order to meet the human needs for society, right? Whether it's security, education, work, housing, health, and well-being. So what started as a virus and you know affected was more like, oh, it's healthcare. But no, it's actually also labor policy. It's the mi migrant policy. It's the housing policies that we have, right? Then it boils down to the economic policy and then there's social welfare, of course. But everything is so interconnected, right? We can't just think of how do we make this a better place without actually reviewing all of these systems. So um, the other thing is, I think it's made us feel more vulnerable and in a way that's good, although it's very, very painful for many people. Um, but there's this feeling of, well, it's not just poor people that are vulnerable. Every one of us, we are virus, could be just a virus away from losing our jobs temporarily or even permanently, starting from scratch in a new industry because the old industry is gone. If you're a young graduate, you thought you'd be able to start work, but you're now not able to start work for a year. If you're an older person, what you thought would be enough money to retire on if you work for another five, 10 years, maybe now that's going to be much harder, right? So now if we can see that we're all in this boat together, right? Perhaps we will start thinking about social welfare and social policy in a different way, that it is all about us. We could one day be the person that needs help. And so, you know, we should have, for example, unemployment insurance, right? Instead of when something like this happens, you know, we have to come up with massive new schemes uh, very, in very short time to make sure that people have enough to eat and to get by. So I hope there will be a warmer reception towards universal safety nets, uh, that we will move away from, reduce the case by case basis of doing things, right? And just like, look, if, if you don't have, if you don't have money, if your income is below a certain amount, you just need support. And um, we, we shouldn't have to examine we shouldn't have so many conditions about getting that support. So, so these are some of the things I'll start with. Yeah. And Ranga Michelle Adrian, feel free to jump in. I actually have a long list. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I it's like give space. Yes, thank you. So <laughs> I think taking off from where Corina spoke about policies and systems, right? So I, the broad statement I have is that we have to stop seeing people as problems. It's uh, we have to create an environment of mutual help. And that has really come about during COVID-19. If you're making yeah. soup for your neighbor, that's already mutual help, right? And uh, we have to create an environment where people don't feel displaced. You know, it should be an environment where everyone fits in, is, is my broad statement. And in that sense, we have to change the context, the circumstances, or structural issues that sustain some of our problems. And uh, when, when we talk about problems, a very simple example is we're looking, doing some research on when are you eligible for financial assistance, right? So there's this thing that you must have a $650 per capita income. So this figure keeps coming up. And then we were trying to do some research to find out when was when did this come about? I remember when I joined the social services many moons ago, it was 
then it moved to 650 and in different schemes is different levels right and we don't quite know how what is back to is it a standard of living is it the cost of living is it inflation what should it be is it really 650 per person to live in singapore for a month we don't know right so reviewing some of these uh things that are part of our structure of uh, giving that we need to look at one thing that definitely has come up very strongly is the small spaces we live in yes all of us live in flats many of us live in flats which is small but when you put a family of five eight ten people in this rental one room flats it is inhumane and really the the small living spaces need to be re-explored connectivity is a basic right uh adequate wages i mean this is my list and i i think more than a safety net i attended a talk by the un and they were actually talking about a social protection floor it's not a net because the net has got holes you know so can we create a stronger safety floor that people can stand on that they don't feel they're going to fall over the edge uh, as soon as something hits i mean this is what i really think that we need to look at and this requires work on so many different levels all the stories we've heard from the people that we work with uh, from academics from politicians from the media you know many parts of our society has to come together to be able to create that thank yeah. you i i i stand behind everything that karina and ranga have said um especially with what karina said about social i i this is again the issue of silos um social policy being viewed in a silo is unhelpful it's it's downstream work it, you're just kind of doing all this downstream work when really so many things could have so many things could have, could have been tweaked up, upstream right to reduce the amount of pressure on one single ministry down the road and um i i, I feel for i feel for that i feel for that um i suppose i would really like to see um in the policy making process with any with any policy um deep and considered uh well considerations like deep and thoughtful considerations of the most vulnerable members of society and that how they would be able to how how that policy might affect them right and i would like to see um considerations of externalities in in the policy making process and i mean this for every policy like karina has said not just social policy because every policy is a social policy it affects our society um ranga had this laundry list i agree um she mentioned jobs she she mentioned wages and it's it's not so simple right it's not so simple to just um like wave a wand and say uh, higher wages which of course ranga's not saying is possible but this this has a lot to do with with the economic structure that that uh that defines us um where you know a few people hold a lot of of money and capital and own and own the the instruments of production and and trickle down economics from what i can see uh with our families doesn't seem to be working i'm not an economist uh, i'm not an economist at all um my econ my economics uh, education ended in a, a levels but but we can but we see that um some of our family member some of our family's parents are working in nice hotels they are working in, in beautiful environments as as cleaners 
right? As yeah, security security guards, and they are they are not seeing any of the money that is going to the owners of of those hotels um, or those beautiful spaces. It's it, it's 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 very stuck, and I think we need to force ourselves to confront that reality. And and think about what needs to change, what needs to give. Mm-hmm. And before I jump to Adrian, which we will, um, there's this question which I will um, kind of highlight as well because it relates to the discussion we're having. So this question is about um, blind spots, but the question here, I think the focus in the second paragraph is what are the long-term solutions that we should be less resistant to? Because I think the underlying point is how do we tackle resistance to some of these policy changes that we are, we've been listing so far. So I, I'm putting that as a broad um, question and framework, and then I'm going to jump to Adrian. So Adrian, um, tell us a bit more about what you think you want to see and what do we not want to see? Uh, I'm, I'm coming from a very uh, layman and a very ground up person. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about the policies because I felt that uh, it's some, it, I would say government policy is a thing that is so complex and so complicated that I would believe most of us here wouldn't want to be politician or policymaker. So I I don't want to like assume that it's actually easy to come with a, a social policy. And I, I do believe that um, to build up a nation, there tends to be someone who sacrificed from it, uh, from it and which is why there are organizations that steps up to, to help these people. And which is very much uh, why all the social service agencies are here to make sure that no one gets um, left out by, by the development of the nation. So um, I, I can't really comment about our social policy, but I do see that there are problems with it and there are many things that we could have done better. Um, in a, well, in another perspective in terms of what we're trying to do, um, I mean, as a community is that we will hope, uh, my, my wish is that the community can do something different to actually improve the situation of our nation for, for those people who need it. Um, in a way that perhaps we should allow um, the social service agencies and the professionals to do what they do best uh, or the medical professionals to do or what they, what, what they do best for those people who really do need help in the, that, that belongs to the most critical ones. And while for the rest of us, like, I mean, that are not so critical, or perhaps the middle income, there are something that the community can do to help these people, and therefore they don't need the former agency support. Um, it may be a crazy idea, like, why would I help someone, or why would I expect my neighbor to help me when, it, when, when, when I need to? I, perhaps this is something that all of us, um, maybe this will be something that everyone should think about, is that should I help my neighbor or how do I know whether my neighbors need help or do you even know the, the person's uh, the, the, the name of your neighbor who live besides you so if we could actually be more understanding and really do our small little steps to know our community perhaps we don't even we wouldn't be burdening the social services agency that much because we've already helped these people on our own and uh, the other thing that I wanted to create awareness is that you know, as, as these few months on how SGSC has been supporting the community, I realized that there's a lot of volunteers who wish to do something different to make a change in their community. But the only thing that stops them from doing it and uh, escalating the cases back to us is because they don't have the awareness, they don't have the necessary skills and confidence to, to execute the care and concerns to 
to those that uh, they, they, they met. So um, I, I do hope that there will be somewhat uh, national skills kind of opportunities whereby um, we can create more awareness of different situations that people face. Like how do I detect if someone may be under uh, family violence or how do I know whether, uh, what are the symptoms of someone who, who may be having um, depression and what is the next best thing I could do for these people? If I could ask these questions to someone who is not a social worker, they will say, I don't, I don't know, should I just uh, say hi and chit-chat with the person? But when I ask this question to a social worker, he or she will be able to tell me saying that, hey, okay, there's so many different spectrum of depression and this is what you have to do and this is what you have to do and so on. But what if we can actually pass this knowledge down to the community to do early detection as the first responder so that um, the social workers can actually pinpoint those that is actually critically in need of help to focus on them and leave the community to take care of those that are not that critical yet. So yeah, that, that would be where I'm coming from. That's a great point. And I think that links to the point Ranga mentioned about mutual help and community aid, which is fantastic. I was wondering, Ranga, Karina, Ranga, Karina and Michelle, whether you have any final thoughts on this question? Yeah, I have a, a few more. So, you know, I really like this uh, thought that came through um, when the dorms got hit, which was that we are as strong as our weakest link. And I hope that we always bear that in mind. And I think that maybe a test for our, our social policy is, is, will it pass the COVID test, right? So if this was to happen again, will we do better, right? Much, much better than we did the last time. Uh, and maybe we should think about these worst case scenarios. If something were to happen and the most vulnerable are going to be the most exposed, it means that the whole of Singapore is also going to be exposed. Um, in terms of migrants, I think that we should really think about extending our definition of who we should care about in, in Singapore. And it should include the people who are working here and are doing these essential services that are paid so poorly um, and make sure that uh, we do better by them, whether it's migrant spouses who we find are most susceptible to domestic violence because they are dependent on their spouses for the renewal of their of their um, passes. Um, but I think all the migrants groups, we should think more closely about if they're here and they're here for a few years, can we find a way for, you know, if, for actually making them citizens at some point? There is a path to that. And when there's a crisis, everyone is also looked after, whether or not they were hit by COVID, but, you know, if they are, they're struggling financially, we should make sure that um, they are taken care of as well. Yes. Michelle Ranga? Yes, I have just one thought to add, which is, uh, <clears throat> I think in policy making, we do have some voice of community, but not enough. And when I talk about community, I mean it in all manner, right? So if you're talking about mental health, the people affected by mental health, if you're talking about women and uh, spousal violence, the women affected by that, you know, it is like literally having the community, having stewardship in the system, right? How can we do that? So I think today is one start. Uh, we have uh, Santosh from OP here and we're trying out this, what we would call uh, collective wisdom from people. And th this is one start to try and get more voices into the fray, which are on the sidelines to come together to contribute to policy making. So community having stewardship in the system is something that I've learned from other speakers. And I think, and I always ask, ask myself, how can we do it in Singapore? How can we create that open sharing 
and uh, so that we can shape policy that is relevant to the ground, that is relevant in addressing the needs. So th that that was one thought that was going through, and I think it'll be a it'll be a very sorry situation if we miss this opportunity to do it now. What we don't want to see is all of this that is being said being ignored, and we just move on and we say, okay, the virus has been cured, and then we go back to business as usual. Uh, I think that would be a huge opportunity lost. Right, and um, oh, sorry, Michelle. Yeah, I've been I've been waving my mental pompons behind Karina and Rangala. Um, so what what they said, um, I think one one thing I want to talk about is the role of the media. I think the media um has been has been very it's been excellent, you know, in this in this time. I've seen amazing reports coming out of CNA of today, um, Mothership, um, the the reports that Raga mentioned that sparked Mind the Gap in the Straits Times. All those were very, they have been very brave, raw reports of realities on the ground for people among in our most vulnerable communities. And I think that's very important. It's really important for people, um, for, for the ordinary Singaporean to know what's going on and, and, and then to react to it, to respond to it. And for that response, and, and also for, for, for the persons themselves, right? The persons, uh, vulnerable persons themselves, as Ranga said, it is important for all these voices and all these responses to be factored into the ultimate decision-making, uh, decisions that are made on their behalf. Um, I, and that was a part of what I meant by um, changes in the policy-making process as well. It's, it's, it's messy, it's messy, but... Um, that's it. I think that the media has a very, very important role to play here. Just, just telling the stories of people on the ground, and that is that uh, makes it so clear for us, lah. What, what we need to do as a society. And that's it for our episode today. Thank you for joining us. Please also share other initiatives or issues which you think should be highlighted. Email me at sppkjy at nus.edu.sg That's sppkjy at nus.edu.sg You can also subscribe to the newsletter and the podcast at socialservice.sg or tinyletter.com slash socialservice.sg Thank you very much and see you next time.